They say this, you shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His Word this morning. Gracious Father, we are indeed a grateful people because we have Christ. I pray this morning that You might do business with us, Lord. That You might bring conviction where it is needed. That You might open up our hearts. Help us to see we're prone, Lord, to make and offer our worship to idols. Father, would You give us eyes to see that even we who belong to Christ are tempted to make much of something that you created and much less of you as the creator of all things who gave himself for us. Would you help us by your grace that we might be moved to offer worship to the only one who is worthy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mighty God whom we serve. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So obviously we're going to be talking about idolatry this morning. I think this is something in every book of the Bible um, that we address at some point because it's in every book of the Bible. But a question I was pondering this week as I was considering this passage, this question just came to my mind. Was, was idol worship really any more prevalent in the ancient Near East than it is today in the United States? And I think the answer to that question depends on how we think about idols and idolatry. In fact, the definition of idol in Webster's 1828, mind you, dictionary, is this. This is the definition of an idol in that dictionary. It says, an idol is anything which usurps the place of God in the hearts of his rational creatures. An idol is anything which usurps the place of God in the hearts of his rational creatures. Said another way, an idol is anything on which we set our affections. And so, given that definition, idolatry is as much of a problem today and in our age as it was or is in any other. Because uh, God is well aware of the propensity of the fallen heart to, to churn out idols by the barrels... Here in our passage, the Lord is going to warn Israel and therefore us to not worship idols, but instead to worship the only true and living God. That, that's really our big idea this morning. It's, it's pretty simple. The big idea is don't worship idols, worship the Lord. Don't worship idols, worship the Lord. That's what the two verses we just read in Leviticus 26 say to us very clearly. And as we consider this passage in more detail, uh, though I, I want to look specifically at the warning we find here. I want to start with that. I want us to see that you shall not make idols. And then I want us to transition and then look at the command. It starts with the warning, verse 1. The command's in verse 2 that says, You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. And then I want to consider the reason both the warning and the command are necessary. And then I want to close with a question that I want us to consider together. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's go ahead and go there. Uh, the warning. We start with the warning. And the warning is quite simply, do not worship idols. 
Don't worship idols. I want to consider this warning, uh, do not worship idols, uh, under three characteristics of idols themselves. I want to look at their universality, their multiplicity, and their vanity. Let's look at those in turn. The universality of idols, everyone worships. Everyone worships. This is important for us to understand. Everyone worships. We read in verse 1, You shall not make idols for yourselves. This verse is here because God knows that we as creatures worship all the time. One pastor by the name of Paul Lloyd wrote this. He said, Worship is not an event that takes place on a Sunday morning. No. We are programmed to find value in something and then to give ourselves to it. Even non-Christians acknowledge this. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who was a gifted author and professor of literature, who took his own life at the age of 56, he once wrote this. He said, here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Ralph Waldo Emerson, writing nearly a hundred years before Wallace, said this. He said, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. See, when we worship something other than the Lord, that is idolatry. Our worship is idolatry. The thing we worship is an idol. Now, I want to be fair here. I want to know, and I want you to know, that that many atheists would adamantly disagree with this statement that we all worship. In fact, as I was doing some research online this week, I I came across many atheist websites and and blogs that said just that. Many believe that they are actually non-worshippers, that they do not worship anything. Of course, most of their rebuttals and reasons for this belief is based on a very narrow understanding of what worship actually is. But but when we understand that worship is really the, the feeling or expression of reverence honor and adoration towards that which we love the most, we begin to recognize that worship is ingrained in us. Friends, we all worship. Worship is as natural to human beings as breathing. Uh, Paul Lloyd, again, he offered a, a very helpful analogy in regards to this. He wrote about how we can compare worship to swimming. We uh, learned about uh, habitats yesterday in homeschool and, and science, and we asked the question, you know, would a whale survive in the desert? No, not at all. Would a, would a monkey survive in the ocean? No, not at all. And so, but think about this in regards to swimming. If humans want to swim, what do we do? We go swimming. That's what we tell someone when we intend to swim. See, I'm not a fish. I don't inhabit water. And so when I want to swim, I go swimming. But a fish, a fish doesn't go swimming. A fish lives in water. It doesn't go swimming. It's swimming all the time. And in the same way, you and I, we do not go worshiping. We are worshiping. 
every moment of every day because that is what we are. Now, don't take my word for that. Scripture actually confirms this proposition. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, Paul explains this very thing. He says in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So they have no excuse for worshiping God. Paul continues, verse 21, he says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. In other words... They did not worship Him, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. But the worship of idols is not just universal. There's also a multiplicity that has to be considered, and that is idols come in all shapes and sizes. The multiplicity of idols is another characteristic. Idols come in all shapes and sizes. If you look at verse 1 again, we read a little bit more this time. It says, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves. You shall not set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. And so here the, the Lord just lays out several different things that can be worshipped and honored. And really, this is the point of what John Calvin was saying in his, his famous quote when he talked about the idol being, or the heart being, excuse me, an idol factory, churning out all sorts of idols. The reality is, you and I can just about idolize anything. But let me name a couple that are prolific in our own day. These aren't in the fill-in-the-blanks, but you might want to write these down as I uh, go through them. Uh, these are a couple of the most prolific idols in our day. I would say materialism. Materialism is, is really just a form of idolatry where we idolize material things. The idol is really not that much different from the wooden carved idols that people used to worship. So sure, we don't collect those things as idols, and yet they have a similar function in our lives, don't they? Are we not prone to spend our time, money, and energy acquiring and caring for these things? Christian, if we do not guard our hearts, material items can easily become idols that we honor, adore, and revere in the place of the Lord. What about this one? What about pleasure? Pleasure is a prolific idol today. Is it possible that pleasure can become an idol? One could say idolatry begins when man begins to live for his own pleasure rather than God's glory. If you were to ask me, I would say that this is probably one of the most prevalent idols in our culture. We have, for the most part, bought into the lie that our lives are supposed to be pleasurable always. Every moment of every day. And when they are not, we will find something, whether it's prescribed or otherwise, to make our lives pleasurable. In fact, we use alcohol, drugs, food, sex, entertainment, all things to appease our idolatry in this particular fashion. If we're honest with ourselves, we wouldn't have any difficulty admitting that we live in what's called a hedonist culture. Like the Epicureans of old, we believe pleasure is our highest good. 
And at this point, I want to make something abundantly clear. And that is, pleasure in and of itself is not bad. We need to know this. I have to address this because as I was researching this week, one gentleman was writing about this very topic. And he talked about how the people worship at the stadium. Now, certainly some do, and this is probably the worst example I could personally use for this, because you know my love for sports, but I digress. Uh, This writer described the whole thing as an act of worship, and therefore came to the conclusion that he would never attend any game because it's nothing but idolatry. And to that I would just say, careful, there's a ditch on the other side, right? It's not the game in itself that is idolatrous. It's how our hearts are so given to it that we devote our lives to it. That our lives revolve around it. And in doing so, it becomes an idol. Baseball is not idolatrous. The the way some people worship it is. Pleasure is not idolatrous. It is a good gift from the Lord. But the way some pursue it, it becomes idol worship. So materialism, pleasure, what about the idol of comfort? The idol of comfort, it really is just a cousin idol of pleasure. We exchange the cross for a couch. We want to believe Jesus' promises that we will not have trials and tribulations in this world because Jesus is more interested in our comfort than our sanctification. This idol, I'm convinced, offers itself as an alternative to the true worship of God every single day in a thousand different ways. Listen, sleep in an extra hour or get up with the Lord and spend time in his word and prayer. What's more comfortable? Share the gospel or stay comfortably quiet. Disciple my children or turn on the TV. Rebuke my brother's sin or, you know, just go hang out with a person that doesn't offend me. The idol of comfort says God wants you to be comfortable Take a seat on the couch and follow me. Don't be deceived, Christian. The idol of comfort is subtle but powerful. What about the idol of self-image? I could honestly camp out here for a while, couldn't I? The worship of this idol is absolutely everywhere in our culture. Managing one's self-image has become America's pastime. What about the idol of control? Many sell their birthright to please this idol. This idol promises safety and security, but more often only delivers fear and worry. And when this idol is not placated, it curses its followers with panic and anxiety. It fills their things with what they cannot control, provoking them to offer more and more of their lives on the altar of control. And when the curtain is pulled back and the idol is revealed for its futility, the loss of control... Is often paralyzing. Really, this is true of all of our idols, which leads to the third characteristic we see of idol worship, and that is vanity. That's a characteristic that's clear the vanity idol. See, idols are worthless, not worthy. Idols are worthless, not worthy. See, idolatry is simply attributing, us attributing, value or worth to something or someone that does not possess that value or worth inherently. I'm going to say that again. 
Idolatry is simply us attributing value or worth to something or someone that does not possess that value or worth inherently. It's a derived value. Let me use an illustration to help us better understand what I'm trying to say. And I know it's my anniversary, so I got permission for this just so you don't worry for my sake. But uh, my wife has great value because she's made in the image of God. That alone gives her great value in the eyes of each and every one of us. She has value in this body of believers because she is given to us as a fellow believer. And so she is now a sister in Christ. She has even greater value to me because she's been given to me in the covenant of marriage. She is my flesh of flesh and bone of bones. She is exceedingly precious to me. But, as we often talk about, she is not worthy of my worship As tempting as it is someday. She is not my most valuable possession, nor am I hers. And if either of us were to think so, we would be deceiving ourselves and attributing value to one another that we do not ultimately possess. See, our value is derived from the one who is indefinitely valuable, who is infinitely valuable. The only one worthy of our worship. And to become confused on this issue, what it does is it would actually pervert my love for Amy. It doesn't enhance it. My worship of her would actually pervert what God has given us in the covenant of marriage. It is to lose sight of her real value as a gift from God to myself to enjoy in light of that reality. And listen, I really believe that this is actually the source of much marital discord or disharmony. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 10, Scripture supports what I'm trying to communicate here. And the vanity of these idols we often give ourselves to. In Jeremiah 10, it says this. It says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest. The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not, be, not topple. They are upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. The reality is they are idols because we think that they are worthy but they are really worthless to achieve what it is we desire from them. Here's the point. All idols fail. Each and every one. Idols demand more and more and they give less and less. See, idols have to fail because they're not worthy of worship. Don't miss the point here. God is not egotistical because he says, don't worship that, but worship me. We might be tempted to think about God like that. But God is not egotistical for demanding our worship. Why? Because he's God. To demand our worship or to not demand our worship would be actually to deceive us. To allow us to worship something less than God would be to become an accomplice in this great cosmic fiction that God is not God. But God is God. There's only one. And he demands our worship because he alone is worthy. 
See, Jonah knew this. It's why Jonah said this in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. He said, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. To give oneself to an idol is to forsake our only hope of steadfast love in the Lord. Think about it. Let's go back to some of our idols, right? The idol of pleasure. Has it ever really delivered endless pleasure to anyone in this room? The idol of comfort. Has the idol of comfort ever really protected you from pain? The idol of self-image. How's that working out for you? The idol of control. Proverbs 19.21, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. See, all of these idols, they fail, and that's just a sampling. Name anything, and we can turn it into an idol. They are everywhere. That's why the Lord doesn't tell us just not to worship idols, don't do it, but He also then gives us a command, a warning, and then a command. The command is worship the Lord. That's the command. The warning, don't worship idols. The command, worship the Lord. Verse 2 says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you hear nothing else today, Christian, please hear this. The only way to avoid false worship is to engage in true worship. The only way to avoid false worship is to engage in true worship. In fact, we can use the analogy of marriage once again. Listen, the greatest safeguard against adultery in a marriage is to fall more and more in love with your wife. The greatest safeguard against idolatry is simply to be madly in love with God. Remember, we are worshipers, right? We will worship something. We cannot stop worshiping idols until we fall madly in love with the Lord. And so to cast down the idol of pleasure, we must find our pleasure in serving the Lord. We must believe Psalm 1611, that you will show me the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To cast down the idol of comfort, we must find our comfort in knowing the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. See... When we cast down the idol of comfort and begin to fall madly in love with the Lord, He actually redefines comfort for us. This in 2 Corinthians 1 is comfort in the midst of suffering. To cast down the idol of self-image, we must find our self-image in the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If your identity is found anywhere other than Christ, then then I need you to hear this. You either think way too much of yourself or way too little. Maybe both. Here's what I mean by this. The, The biblical reality is you are far worse than you dare think of yourself. No matter how cool your Instagram pictures are. But but there's another reality. 
Yes, that's true, but you are also far more glorious in Christ than you would ever dare think to believe. That's where your identity is. And cast down the idol of comfort and to cast down the idol of control. We need to trust the one who controls all things. Why do we struggle with this so much? But we do. Romans 8, 28, we all know it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. God has promised that he is working all things to transform you more and more into the image of Christ. He has got this thing. Do you believe that? That's a guarantee. Romans 8.28 is a guarantee. He is doing it. It will be done. Why would we worship the idol of control that really is complete and absolute futility? Again, the best remedy against idolatry is not no worship, but true worship. That brings us to the reason, very quickly. The reason that we are to not worship idols and instead worship the Lord is simply because the Lord is worthy of worship. That's the reason. Now, listen, you understand this. The Lord would be justified simply to say, don't worship idols, worship me. He could stop there. But he doesn't just warn Israel not to worship idols, and he doesn't just command them to worship him. The Lord reminds them in his graciousness that he is worthy. Don't miss this. Again, the Lord doesn't have to remind them of anything. The bald witness of creation by itself clearly demonstrates that God is worthy of worship. We saw that in Romans 1. All people know by what God has created that the power and nature of God are worthy of worship. But the Lord adds to this general revelation a special revelation by condescending to fallen people and demonstrating his worthiness in time and space. See, in both verses 1 and 2, the Lord reminds his people... This this refrain that's over and over again. He says, I am the Lord your God. Remember, this is not just a general comment about God's deity. He's not just saying, I'm the Lord, I am God. He's saying, I'm the Lord your God who has redeemed you out of Egypt. I am the Lord God who has rescued you with my outstretched arm and through mighty acts of judgment. You've seen it. What other God has defeated a pantheon of gods? What other God has divided the waters? What other God has provided manna from heaven? What other God has covered the mountain with fire and taken a people out of a nation, made them a nation, brought them to himself, and made them a holy priesthood? What other God? This is what the Lord is saying. Now listen. He doesn't have to reveal all that. He could just say, look at the stars, now worship. But in his graciousness, he provides us so much more. And listen to me, church, if this was true of the special revelation contained in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, how much more is that true of us who have the revelation of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, please turn me to Revelation chapter 5. Y'all need some revelation this morning. Chapter 5. I think I'm going to be okay, but I will warn you, it's hard not to read this chapter and, uh, and not cry. Because it's beautiful. This is hard for us to see, what we've been talking about. But, but John gives us a vision that is worthy of our time. He says this in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. He says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne... 
a scroll written inside and on the back sealed the seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. That is, no one was worthy. So what does John do? Verse 4, so I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. This is the gospel. This is the reason. They fell down and worshipped because they stood before the one who was worthy. Jesus Christ. He's also the one, by the way, who faced and defeated all of our idols. Jesus did not idolize pleasure and comfort. Instead, he gave up the pleasures and comfort of heaven coming to this earth to suffer and die for sins. Jesus did not create an idol of self, but instead gave himself as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice to redeem us from the power and guilt of sin. He was not consumed with self-image. Instead, he was the perfect image of God. Jesus did not worship the idol of control. Instead, he came to do the will of his Father. And he was obedient even unto death. And he perfectly trusted the sovereign control of his Father in heaven. That's why... We read in Philippians that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord. So that brings us to the question, which is really our time of application. The question is this, who do you worship? Who do you worship? In fact, I know a dear brother who uses this question when he's evangelizing. He poses it like this. If someone were to ask someone who is closest to you, who would they say you worship? Would they say you worship Jesus? No doubt about it. Man, you love the Lord your God. Or would they say, huh, you like sports a lot. I know you're really into movies. And you you worship those little creatures called grandkids. (laughs) Please, church, don't be naive. Christians are still prone to idolatry. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, actually warns them against idolatry and uses Israel as an example. It's an amazing text. He says, don't be deceived. The history of Israel itself, it serves as a great example. See, God brought them out of, through miraculous signs. And they don't make it even to Mount Sinai before they started committing adultery. And then he talks about this adultery in other forms. It wasn't just the idol they created, 
But they grumbled when they didn't get the food they wanted. They committed sexual immorality with Moabites. They constantly engaged in idolatry in various forms. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. Is is that what I have up there? 1 Corinthians 10 chapter 12 saying, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He's warning the church. By the way, not your neighbor. He's warning you, Christian, this. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. In Colossians 3.5, we, we also read this. It says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul exhorts them. Put it to death. So my exhortation to us, church, is when we consider idols, we, we do something. And that is we, we flee and fight. It's the first thing we do. I know that's two things. First and second thing we do. They both start with the same Letter, so we have to do it together. Flee and fight. It's what Paul says. There are idols right now that your heart and flesh are offering up to you. And I'm telling you, flee. Where you are able, flee. Now here's what we do. We just, we just, our defense system kicks in immediately. And we say, I'm not able. Well, the Lord makes a way. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He provides a way of escape, so flee. Confess it, remove it. If you cannot stop watching TV, spending more time with screens than you are with the Lord, get rid of it. Stay away from it. Run as far and as fast as you can. But listen, here's the problem with that, and here's our struggle, right? You can't run away from your old nature. That residue from your old nature, your sinful self, the idol factory. Listen, it's been condemned. Hallelujah. Amen. But it's still operational until the Lord returns. It's still just cranking out these idols. And if that's the case, which it is, then it's not just going to have to be you fleeing. It's going to have to be you fighting. See, wherever you go, you're still there. And that's a problem. You, you can't flee from all sin. You're going to have to fight. You're going to have to mortify your flesh. And it takes every ounce of energy that the Lord is working in you to do that very thing. Flee and fight. But also seek and set. I want you to remember that. Flee and fight. I came home saying that over and over again to my children. They had no idea what I was talking about. Then I told them, and they said, are we getting rid of our TV? And I said, well, (laughs) we might, if that's your first question. Um, (laughs) Seek and set. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I don't don't know if anyone noticed uh, in verse 5 that we just read, there was a therefore. Did you catch that? So we have to figure out, what's it there for? Well, here's why. Verse 1 of Colossians 3 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, it's not simply don't worship. 
It's worship in spirit and in truth the one who is worthy. We fight, friends, because we know that the victory is sure. Set your mind on Christ and his victory. Fall in love with him. We flee to the arms of Christ where our lives are already hidden in Christ. Do you see that? Listen, we are already hidden in Christ. See Christ as he's clothed in his gospel. Seek him, set your mind upon them. For then and only then will you have the strength to fight and flee. I'll end here with verse 4 of Colossians 3 where it says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's a promise, folks. We will appear with Christ in glory. The victory over these idols that plague us, it is sure. We will have clean hands and a pure heart because we will appear with Christ in glory. There is a day soon coming when you and I will no longer lift our souls to another. And so what do we do? We flee and fight. We seek and set. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. And until that day, we commit to do these things in seeking our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, how we need to be reminded Lord, how complacent and naive we can become and miss the idolatry that springs up on every side, even from within us who are redeemed. Lord, forgive us. Grant us not only the grace of forgiveness, but Lord, the grace that empowers. Help us that we might honor and glorify you in all things, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, my my prayer is that you would make your son so beautiful to us that we cannot worship anything else but him. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, you may have a seat as we come to the conclusion of our service. Uh, Really, it's the time of our invitation as well. Um, I I think the invitation is pretty clear. This is, again, this is a call to Christians, right? Uh, If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know yourself, you know your own propensity to make idols. And so the, the Lord is gracious at so often to remind us in his word about this thing that is after us and after our worship. Uh, But it's also an opportunity for us to repent. For us as Christians, who are always repenting, by the way, to lay those idols at the feet of Jesus and instead worship the only one who is worthy. And so if you're here this morning and and as I'm speaking, the Lord is just bringing up those things immediately in your mind that you know are idols in your life. Would you... Uh, would you just confess those to a brother or sister? Would you get somebody in your life and say, you know, I just know that, that my big one is this. Mine's pleasure. Mine's comfort. Mine's control. Mine's self-image. Then I, the, mine's all of them. I'm just constantly struggling. If you're like me, you're just constantly struggling with all of them. If you would, just uh, allow yourself to have somebody in your life who's constantly speaking those things and encouraging you in that way. Why? Because that's why God has given us the church. God has given us a church, so again, as we talked about last week, that we would be focused on the path before us and know that the only answer to the false worship the idol provides is true worship of the true and living God through the gospel of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And we are purposed here to remind each other to stay on the path, 
to look towards Christ and His grace that forgives us of that worship and instead reorients and brings our minds back to Him. So if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you as a church member to confess that to a brother or sister. But maybe you're here this morning and and the reality is that you've been exposed to the fact that you've only worshipped idols. That that if if worship is setting our affection, desire, and orienting our lives around something, then, then you have recognize that everything that your life has been about has its value or worth derived from our Creator. And you've never truly worshipped the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Well, friends, if that's you this morning, let me, let me remind you the story of the Gospel. We believe in a God who created this world, as we've said, and everything in it. And, and as a Creator, He therefore rules over it as a good and righteous King. In the very beginning, He created man, and, and man was purposed to to, to, to rule over the earth under the authority of their good and loving God. But man instead rejected the good and righteous rule of their king that they walked with, had fellowship with, and instead decided that they themselves should be gods. They themselves should be kings. They rejected uh, his good, goodness and mercy and instead brought upon sin. You know why? Because if, if God is God, he rules over everything, then a, a punishment against him is treason against the creator. And therefore, it is worthy of a just and righteous punishment. And the Lord's punishment for sin against him is his wrath, his righteous and just wrath. And not only that, but it's death. It's, it's physical death. It's, it's why we have sickness and we struggle with the things of this world. But it's also a spiritual death. We are now, because of our sin, unable to worship God the way that we were created to do. And so what you see in the Old Testament is you see this mankind as they develop and grow, they're constantly exchanging the worship of God for the worship of all of these other things. And yet God is gracious and he's long-suffering with them. The reality is he could have damned man to destruction as soon as they rebelled against them, but he did not. Instead, he promised a remnant. He promised that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush the head of sin and restore his kingdom. So as the Old Testament goes on, the people are looking, they're longing for this long-awaited Messiah. And yet, how does he come? He comes as a baby. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, steps out of the comforts and pleasures of heaven to enter into this world that has rejected him. And what does he do? He, He lives a life of a perfect sacrifice, of obedience to his Father. He submits himself, though he was equal with God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he said he humbled himself in the form of a bondservant. And was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. This is what the Lord Jesus did. He purchased for us where you and I, where we deserved wrath and punishment. Jesus only deserved righteousness. He earned for us the right standing that your soul longs for with your creator. And then on the cross... On the cross, he received upon himself the full just and wrath punishment that you and I deserved. And he gives those who believe in him the gift of his righteousness. So that even though you are a rebel and a sinner, you can stand before your creator covered in the righteousness and redemption of the blood of Christ. That's a good deal. You have exchanged eternal destruction for eternal life in Christ. And what you must do is you must repent. You must therefore declare, I am no longer the king of my own life. It is not I who live. It is Christ. He is my king. I desire to follow him. I want to live for him. And you turn away from your sinful lifestyle. You'll go on repenting every day as these idols come into your life. But you will put your eyes upon Jesus and he will be the ultimate object of your worship.
but then you believe in him. You trust in his finished work on the cross that it was all that was needed to secure your salvation for all of eternity. And you continue trusting him on and on until the day that you die. Salvation is not a prayer that you pray. It is an ultimate rest and trust in the finished work of our king who died for us. So if you're here this morning, and you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, then let me encourage you, now is the time. You can, right here, in your seat, simply call out to the Lord, confess your worship of all the false things in this world, and instead, confess him as your king. Ask him to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to do that very thing as we confess it to him. You can. Get this. This is how beautiful the gospel is. You're sitting here on a Sunday morning, December 3rd, 2023 in Callahan, Florida. And you can right now in your seat go from one who is eternally doomed to destruction to one who is guaranteed an inheritance of a kingdom of riches and glory beyond all imagination. Is that not a good deal? If you're here today and you have not trusted in the finished work of Jesus, then please do so. Pastor Justin will be down front at the end of our... We'll be over here uh, so we can greet Miss Eileen over here, but we'll be right here, down front, loving and wanting to to deal with anything that the Lord's pricked your heart with this morning. The sermon does not end when the Bible is shut. The sermon continues as we are called to respond. It is our worship to respond to what God has done. What is your response going to be? Who do you worship? My prayer is that every one of us would know the true and living God.